0: Well, good morning again. Uh, we are in a three-part series. Uh, last week, I, I was thinking I would thin out the group uh, last week. Um, you know, for all I know, that you could be a whole different group of people, and I lost the last group last week. So uh, I'm just happy you're here. Uh, next week, I would encourage you to go to Group Connect. Um, as much as I'd love to see you here, I'd much rather you be connected to a small group of people in this church. So if you're not connected to a small group of people in this church, I would urge you, skip the 9 o'clock service Go to Group Connect. Uh, so this morning we're going to be in Philemon 1, 8 through 16. Philemon 1, 8 through 16. That's 1186 in the Pew Bible. Last week we looked at three areas where our faith in Christ transforms us, and that is in our sense of family, our sense of ownership, and our sense of purpose. We saw Paul affirm that transformation in the life of Philemon, but he knows that there's, there's some areas where he still needs to grow And so he is seeing this opportunity of Onesimus returning, his runaway slave returning, to press in and to challenge Philemon. As we read the words that Paul writes to Philemon, let us consider how the Lord, through his spirit, might be challenging us. Philemon 1, 8 through 16. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required... I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, challenge is not easy. Our flesh recoils at being challenged. Father, I pray that your spirit will overcome our flesh as we hear how Paul challenges Philemon and as we consider how we, when we face the various situations of our life, we're being challenged. Father, I pray that for myself as I sit here and am often convicted by the words of the words of your Scripture. Convict me, convict us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, one of the men in my men's small group had a, a situation arise. He was building a building for his uh, business, and he got the building constructed. And then all that was left was the parking lot but that ended up being a monsoon season in atlanta and if you know about parking lots going in you can't put them in when it's raining and it rained and it rained and it rained and it rained it was almost comical how much it if it, if so much money for a loan had not been on the line for him it was almost comical how much it rained and so his weekly prayer request to us is can you just lord can you just stop the rain to let this parking lot go in. And it went on so long that it got to the point where he kind of broke down and just said, what's God doing? You know, I, is, did I make a wrong move? I, I sought counsel on this. I talked to people. I really wrestled in prayer over this. Did somehow I miss the will of God here? Is, is God punishing me for not listening to him? And what we did is that we looked at it and said, you, you know, Perhaps it's not getting you through this that God's interested in. Perhaps it's what he's doing for you and in you in the middle of this. That's the important thing. And you won't get to the other side of this until you reach that place, whatever that is. Maybe it's not a solution to a problem God's most concerned with. Maybe what he's concerned with is your heart. Philemon is having a situation of his own. What's the situation for Philemon? Well, what we believe is happening here is that uh, Onesimus, the runaway slave of Philemon, is returning, and he has two scrolls. One is the book of Colossians, and the other one is this letter to Philemon. And you can imagine the awkward situation, right? The household of Philemon is there, and they know what happened. They know what went down. They know the animosity that probably exists between these two men. There's a situation there. What is Philemon going to do with that awkward moment? What is he going to do with that tense situation? Well, Paul has an idea on it. Paul has a perspective on the situation of Onesimus' conversion and return to Philemon. Look at verse 15. He says, For perhaps, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you. For a while that you might have him back forever. now look, sometimes the Lord spoke directly to Paul, but we know there's many situations in Paul's life where he was just trying to discern the will of God, just like you and I would. He didn't know in, in, in fact, that he would get out of prison at certain moments or, or which way he would go at certain times. he didn't have a hotline to God going, "Okay, now which way do I go?" Very much like us, he had to discern the will of God, and here he's looking. At this situation, and he's asking the question what might the Lord be doing here in the life of Onesimus and in the life of Philemon? He's using the situation, he believes, to challenge Philemon. But how does he challenge Philemon? And how does the Lord challenge us? Well, we see through various situations we encounter, the Lord challenges us in three different ways that we see here in the text. He challenges us to examine our motives. He challenges us to examine our perception of others, and he challenges us to examine our perception of him. Well, first, the Lord challenges us to examine our motives. Verses 8 and 9 say, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. And then verse 14 he says, But I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. What Paul is addressing is the level of motivation. He's not just giving him a rote command. He could do that. But what he wants to see in this situation is heart transformation. He wants to see the level of Philemon's motives change. When our kids were little, uh, and they would disobey, uh, as all children do, we would say to them, we want you to obey, to obey all the way, right away, but with a third part, with a happy heart. And why add a happy heart? Because that's the level of motivation. Simply getting them to do what I want them to do isn't parenting my child. We have to speak to their hearts. And so when they recoil and say, well, I can't, I don't want to, Or they passive-aggressively do what I'm asking them to do. Or they half-heartedly do what I'm asking them to, to do. They haven't really done what has been required. And so as they struggle with it, with the I don't want to, our conversation moved to, right, you can't. Jesus has to do that in you. It takes his spirit to transform your heart. You cannot obey without him working in your heart. To dismantle that flesh and give you a sense of obedience. Because only the Spirit can cause us as sinners to say the three words, I am wrong. I am wrong. Philemon's koinonia, his sharing of his, of his life, of his house with the church, his, his encouragement of the brothers did not come from compulsion, it came from a transformed sense of ownership. This is not mine. This belongs to the Lord. But neither should his obedience flow from compulsion. It should flow from agape love. The sacrifice that Christ made for us, it should flow from an understanding of that. Now, when you think of of this kind of thing, you, you see in the Old Testament a wonderful example in the life of Jonah. He was messed up in all three of these levels. All three of these levels. And you see in the book of Jonah, him being addressed and challenged on these areas. I cannot stand children's storybooks that say, and Jonah ran away because he was scared. Jonah did not run away because he was scared. He was not fearful of Nineveh. He knew his, his, his Lord had power to destroy anybody that came in his way. No, no. The whole thing sets you up. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, then you get to chapter 4, and you see why he ran. Why did he run? He did not want the Ninevites to repent. That was his base motivation. They were enemies of Israel, and therefore they did not deserve to avoid God's wrath. That's what's at heart. And then God gives him like a a, a loving father, a a beautiful um, object lesson where he makes this plant grow up. And then Jonah's like, yes, I love the shade. The shade's great. And the worm comes along and he eats the plant. The scorching wind comes and and the plant withers. And Jonah's exceedingly angry. And God, being the kind of God he is as a father, asks him the question, do you have any right to be angry? He's drilling down to the level of his motivations and he's asking him the question, do you really have the right, Jonah? And I think if He addressed us that way, we say, in our moments of of, of fleshliness, we say, "Of course, I have the right to be angry." Don't you, under- don't you understand my situation, Lord? Oh yeah, I'm a Sovereign God. I completely understand your situation. <laughs> Didn't surprise me at all. Do you have any right to be angry? You see, Jonah didn't think they deserved grace, but Jonah didn't deserve grace. No one deserves grace. That's why it's grace. Philemon's motives were pure regarding the love of the brothers and sisters in Colossae, but toward Onesimus, not so much. But Jesus is clear. Outward obedience is not enough. There has to be an inward transformation. It has to flow from a happy heart, a joyful heart, a heart that's resting in him motive matters and the only one who can change our motive and our heart is jesus perhaps the situations we face are to remind us that god wants our heart to be aligned with his to change our motives rather than to go through the motions so some situations expose the heart level motivations while others other situations cause us to examine our perception of others Now you can see hints of Philemon's perceptions of Onesimus in verses 10 through 12. Paul writes, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. We talked about last week how our faith in Christ transforms our sense of family, and Paul is a poster child for that here, Right? In verse 10, he says, my child, Onesimus, he barely knows this guy whose father I have become in my imprisonment. Paul welcomed him openly into the family of faith because he had made a profession of faith in Christ. He became no longer a slave to sin, but a child of God. He calls him his very heart in verse 12. Philemon has a heart-level love. We know that. He's refreshed the hearts of the saints. However, Paul sees his blind spot. And here's Paul's challenge. You've refreshed the hearts of the saints, but what about Brother Onesimus? Brother Onesimus? Brother Onesimus? What did Philemon think about Onesimus? What was his perception of him? Well, the hint here is that when he says, i would returned to him no longer as useless, but useful, that in some respect, Philemon would discourage Onesimus by calling him useless. And more evidence of that is here in the text in the fact that Onesimus' name means useful. Now, it's not the same Greek word that he says useless, useful, but it is a synonym. So if you're a Seinfeld fan, I don't know how many Seinfeld fans are out there. I hear a few giggles. Some of you are Seinfeld fans. George Costanza, at one point in his life, uh, he turns to uh, Elaine and, and to um, Jerry, and he says he's talking about his high school coach and how discouraging his high school coach was because he took his name Costanza and he turned it into can't stand you. Can't stand you, can't stand you, can't stand you. And can you imagine, though, the world in which Philemon was extremely rude to Onesimus saying, useful? You're useless. Hey, useless. Did you do this today? Hey, useless. How about this? Hey, useless. When are you going to get your act together? What he failed to see is that Ones- Onesimus is made in the image of God. God created him, even though the image is marred by sin. That image remains, and he's worthy of dignity and respect. To Philemon, Onesimus was nothing more at this point than a commodity. Not a person, but property. Now, here's something I haven't talked about yet, but I can't can't preach through Philemon without talking about it. And that's the issue of slavery. This is a different, this bondservant nature is a different kind of slavery than chattel slavery that, that was what we dealt with in North America. However, if you boil it down to its essential, people were viewed as commodities and property in both instances. Onesimus is not property. And God, through Paul, is really reinforcing that. No longer calling him a slave, but a brother. In fact, I believe it's verses like this that the abolitionists and Wilberforce saw as the poison pill to chattel slavery in, in, in both England and North America. The verse that says, No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. if Philemon was freed from his slavery to sin and he's a child of God and Onesimus was freed from his slavery to sin and he's a child of God, then how can Philemon say he owns his brother? He cannot. It's the very undoing of viewing people as commodities. Now, fast forward. I know that we don't deal with that in today's world, but we do deal with this. An aptness to view people as commodities, as useful to us. Many of us work in the world of business, and it's what someone can do for us. Or a relationship is based on what someone can do for us. They're seen as commodities, not as people. It's critical how we see people, especially in this day and age. The problem was that Philemon did not see the mission field in his own home, standing before him. Whether Onesimus was just a disobedient guy altogether, what that encouraged in Philemon was nastiness towards Onesimus. Instead of, let's sit down and let me explain to you what Christ did in my life, because that same Christ can transform you as well. He did not do that. Instead, he just turned into to nastiness. We see it in the world around us, though, this, this treating people as commodities, as things. It's even within us. And it needs to be challenged within us. How we treat people is critical because it displays the heart of Jesus, especially if they know we're believers. How we treat the server who's serving our table after we leave church and go to lunch, is essential. How we treat that coworker who tends to be a little belligerent are not someone that we care to hang around. Could it be that Philemon honestly refreshed the hearts of the saints, but could also be nasty to Onesimus? Could it be that many people that we love and we would say are wonderful saints of the Lord can be nasty to other people? Could it be true of us? And the answer is yes, yes, and yes. The problem is that we we tend to have this dichotomy. We say, here are the unpleasant people, and if they're unpleasant, then they must not really know Jesus. And here are the people who know Jesus, and they're perfect in everything they do. Someone could equally see us as a hero in the faith while another person has experienced the nastiness of our flesh. And I would urge us not to put people in categories like that in the church because there are some brothers and sisters in Christ who are difficult people. But that doesn't mean that they don't know Jesus. It means that they are wrestling at a point in their life where we need to pray for them more, not less. Because there are areas in our life where we too need to be challenged and we need people to pray for us. Ask my family. I, I I can. I can. My my. So quick quick story wasn't even in my notes. But I went to my my daughter had an issue with her the cigarette lighter in her car where she plugs her phone in and it was a very simple fix. I've been doing car work all summer. Okay, so this is like the last thing I wanted to do. But I go. I get the fuse. They get the wrong fuse. I had to go back and get the new fuse. Put the fuse in there. Okay, we had had the um, drive belt changed and. So I get, I want to turn everything on, make sure everything's running, that I didn't knock anything out of, uh, out of whack when I was messing with the fuses. And the, the, the car screeches when it starts. And I do it multiple times. So there's something, that the belt needs to be tightened, and I'm really frustrated because she's supposed to go back to school tomorrow. And so I walk in, and I go, how long has your belt been making that noise? Why are you telling me just now? I know you think I'd walk in like Jesus and go, "Oh, beloved, beloved daughter. <laughs> I know you're young and you don't understand these things, so I have compassion on you. But you if need to No. No. I was short-fused. There are areas in my life I need to change. In fact, uh, one of our seminary professors, Jerem Bars, who was just a beloved man, he said to us that if he ever had the chance to visit our congregations, he would not ask our congregate, congregants, what kind of pastor is this man? Instead, he said, I'm going to go to the people that work for you and the custodians, and I'm going to ask the question, what does this man like to work for? And he didn't say that to shame us, but he said that to remind us that we can be whole, sweet, and genteel to the congregation while being a bear to the people that work with us. There are more, there are more pastors falling from ministry now because of that very thing than sexual sin. The bullying, the hatefulness. That they have this public image that they're such wonderful people, but behind the scenes they're bears. And they lord it over those who are on their staff or custodians. It's a a portrait of our heart, and it needs to be challenged. Your perceptions of others reveal your view of them and your view of Christ. Like Jonah, he thought he was better than the Ninevites. Philemon thought Onesimus was beneath redemption. But let me riff off Paul here and say this. Perhaps the reason we've entered a season where morality is upside down in this world is to challenge us to believe everything that the scripture says is true about God. To test our faith toward these two twin truths that Paul proclaims Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the chief. We must examine our perceptions of others. Either the gospel is for the worst of sinners, or we're not saved, because we are the worst of sinners. We weren't a little bit better sinner than the other people who don't go to church. He sought us and he transformed us. He brought us to himself. So perhaps the world is upside down. Instead of wringing our hands about it, maybe we need to think, what is Christ calling us to do in the midst of it. Thirdly, through various situations we encounter, the Lord challenges us to examine our perception of him. Put quite simply, our misrepresentation of God can truly affect our sense of mission and purpose, which we talked about last week. Again, Jonah was very happy to see the Lord judge Nineveh, but he really did not want to see the Lord transform Nineveh. He really wanted God to be the same sort of brooding, nasty God that in his heart he was as person. But it's important to know God's character because we must see our situations through the lens of God's character as he is in his word rather than through misrepresentations. I'll give you an example of this. It's, in, it's here in, in the text. Verse 9. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Now, Paul sees his imprisonment through the lens of God's sovereignty. He doesn't see himself as, you know, goodness, I, I can't fulfill my mission as an evangelist if I'm here in prison. Oh, God, what are you doing? I gotta get out of here. You gotta get me out of here. Can God get me out of here? Can Jesus get me out of prison? And Jesus up there going, oh my goodness, they put him in prison again. How am I ever gonna get the gospel out? That's absurd. That's absurd. You laugh because it's absurd. That is not the character of our Lord. He is sovereign. You know, Paul knows it because Paul's been sprung from prison before. In Philippi, when the earthquake came, and the the prison doors opened, and he didn't go anywhere. Why did he not go anywhere? Because he knew that this man, this jailer, needed Christ. And that's why he was there. And so he prevented the man's suicide, and he led him to Christ Paul sees God's hand even in his imprisonment. How many times in our situation do we look at our situation and go, gosh, I don't think God can work in the midst of this? Paul didn't say that when he was in prison. Instead, he wrote to the Philippians in verses 12 through 14 of chapter 1, he writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He sees what Jesus is doing. How might Philemon need to be challenged in his, per- in his perception of God? Well, to Philemon, God is sending back a useless servant to be punished and driven back into obedience. But to Paul, his assessment is in 15 through 16. For perhaps this is why he was parted uh, from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. He needs to hear what Paul writes to the Galatians about God's character here. That There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. He needs to know that is Christ's heart towards the world, who he's saving. Our perceptions of God can have a profound positive or negative impact on our attitude towards others, even ourselves. And that was driven home a number of years ago in a ministry context, and I asked this uh, student, if I could share the story this week. Um, I had a student in my ministry who was dealing with a mental disorder that made her suicidal. Because the way she saw herself and the way she saw her life was that God saw her as a waste of space. And that if he saw her as a waste of space, maybe she should end her life. And one evening, in the morning, 2 a.m., my phone rang. And it was buzzing, and I have it on buzz because I don't want to wake the whole house. But I I looked over and just grabbed it, and I saw, this was not the same student, okay? But it was another student, and I was thinking, this has gotta be a pocket dial, okay? (laughs) So I put the phone down, I go back to sleep, I figured that person will call back if it's really an emergency. Well, a few minutes later, the phone rang again. So I was like, I guess this is an emergency. So I picked it up, but it was not that person, it was this one who, who struggled with suicide. And I hurried downstairs, and I took the call, and we were talking. And once again, she thought of herself as, it's better. the world is better off without me. And I got to point out what one minister I know calls a parade of providence to her. I said, look, I'm not supposed to be awake right now. The fact that I heard that first phone call as it stopped ringing woke me up so that I heard yours when it came in. Do you think that's the kind of God that wants you to kill yourself? And I was able to point back to other ways in which God had intervened in her life. She's a counselor today. Because she came to understand God's, her perception of God was wrong. And she was able to replace it with a Right perception of God. God is far more patient, loving, forgiving than we are, and he wants to reach people we wish would never embrace the gospel. What might the Lord be doing? The situations we encounter might very well be a chance to show his loving power. Rather than getting to a solution, the situation may be there to transform us, to be an opportunity to examine our motives and our perceptions of others and our perception of God. One more story before we end. One more story. I got to tell this one. Just recently, I was in New York City and I got stuck there. Now, I was trying to get a new flight out on Sunday morning, and when I called Delta, they said there were no flights on Sunday at all, not even connecting flights from LaGuardia, JFK, or Newark to Atlanta. Instead of being frustrated, there's one point in my life where I was like, okay, maybe God wants me to stay here. I don't know why. But I took that opportunity to go the next day to Redeemer downtown. It was one of the the church plants of of Keller's Redeemer Church. And the pastor preached on the 99 and the 1, and I, I had absolutely forgotten the context of the 99 and the 1. I've heard it so many times. The context of the 99 and the 1 is that they were belittling Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners. And his point was that you leave the 99 who are healthy and go seek the 1. Well, the Pharisees were the 99 who think that they're healthy. But these people who were coming to Christ saw their need and they were desperate for something. And that stuck with me. And stuck with me till the the 2 a.m. train ride that I took to JFK on Monday morning. And that morning, I thought I was going to the worst thing I was going to have to avoid was being, you know, mugged or or pickpocketed at 2 a.m. in the morning on the subway. What I didn't expect was when that subway car arrived, it was jam-packed full of people. So I didn't even have a place to sit. And I get on the car and I look and you know, you get on the car and then then the door's closed and you look around, and I'm not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> okay, I've, I've ridden the subway all week or all weekend long, and, and I've never faced this. These are people coming out of Lower Manhattan, going back into Queens, and they are coming from the clubs at 2 a.m. There were men dressed as women. There were many homosexuals talking about, you know, what, you know, life and you know whatnot. There were women dressed in different ways. And that sermon hit me. Leave the 99 and seek the one. And I looked in the faces of these people, and there was absolute desperation. And I looked past my revoltedness, and I took a moment to pray. Pray. These are the very people Christ wants to reach. I needed to adjust my perceptions, my motives, my perceptions of them, and my perceptions of God to match it. Next week we will see how faith compels us, compels Philemon. But as we come to the supper, we're invited to examine our own hearts, our motivations, our perceptions of others, and our perception of God's as we look at this table and we see that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we ask you to search our heart with your Holy Spirit. That's all we can ask. Your word, no matter what I've said, is living, true, and active. And it's a sword that cuts away the things that that are in opposition to you, and it heals us like a scalpel. Make that a reality in our lives, Lord Jesus. Help us to remember, while we were yet sinners, you died for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.